So I love playing around with words and expressions. There's always insight to be gleaned by dwelling on a word or a phrase and then creating a midrush on the fly. So for instance, the Hebrew word for king is melech, good, melech. And the Hebrew word for clown is lemach. Same letters, just the last two are in a different order. So what's the difference between a king and a clown? Sometimes the difference is really hard to see. Or take the expression, bless you, after we sneeze. Now, why do we have to bless someone after they sneeze? Well, no one's really sure. But, the, but scholars of sneezeology, I guess, uh, offer a couple of ideas. The first idea is that the violence of the sneeze was thought to have expelled the soul. And so by saying, bless you, the soul would swim back into the person and they would remain alive. Well, that's kosher. I like that. The second possibility, but much, much gloomier, comes from the time of the Black Death, the bubonic plague in the 14th century. It was a malady that was, I think, almost always fatal. The term bless you during this time was a way to say to another person, we will see you in the world to come. It served as a benediction so that when somebody sneezed and they had the black plague, you'd never see them again. Gloomy, but it makes sense. And speaking of bless you, what better greeting to give to each other at the beginning of the year, as once again we say Shana Tova, but it also seems to me that bless you would be a perfectly appropriate greeting. We know how the new year can bless us. It can bless us with peace, prosperity, health, healing, and all of the things that makes life comfortable, that makes life meaningful and fulfilling. And as we want the year to bless us, we know that the blessings just don't fall from above. They are the culmination of many events coming together that happen to benefit us. So if there must be people behind those events, and it is people who are the ones indirectly who have blessed us through their empathy, support, creativity, and so on, the question is, how do we then bless the new year with them? How do we journey through this world? With all of its surus and its heartache, its frustration and its sadness, how do we do all of that and still be a blessing? Well, to look for the affirmation of being a blessing, oddly, we don't look at a text that is all rainbows and unicorns. Reciting a psalm that speaks joyously of how terrific everything is, is of very limited value. Anyone can sing a happy tune when everything is coming up roses. Rather, to gain a bit of wisdom, we need to search the text for something for when things are terrible. We need to find the saddest guy on the planet. And that guy in the Bible would be Jeremiah. And he is said to have written the book of Lamentations. If you don't know it, 
It's a very short biblical book, and you know one of the phrases of it, by the waters of Babylon, we sat down and wept. Because after the Babylonians kicked the Jews out of the land of Israel and expelled them into what is modern-day Iraq, the Jews lamented not being in Jerusalem anymore. In fact, the first exile was the first crushing blow to the Jewish people. And yet in the middle of this profound depression and destruction, of all that gave Jeremiah his identity as a Jew, he says three words, three words in the book of Lamentations that begin to dispel the darkness. Ulai yesh tikva. Perhaps there's hope. And with these three words, Jeremiah is telling us that not all is lost, and that his and our Jewish identity is not simply to be found in a building or on land, but rather from within the souls of its people. Ulai, perhaps. That's the word we need to key in on. It's not really a difficult word to understand, and it appears only 12 times in the entire Bible. We see it when Abraham is negotiating with God about the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it when Jonah tries to escape from God and asleep below the deck, uh, is oblivious to everything going on around him. And when the captain wakes him and pleads with him to to, to plead with God, he says, Ulai, perhaps God will find him worthy to stop the storm. There are a couple of other dozen uses of the term in the Bible, but they all have one thing in common. The possibility of something else in the mind of the speaker. Very simply, ulai perhaps reflects infinite possibilities and does not confine any of us to a predetermined fate. When Jeremiah says, perhaps there is hope, This is not the lament of a beaten man who gives voice to his depression. It is the voice of someone who is reassuring his people that looking only at their present circumstances will confine them to those circumstances. Without the hope, the tikva, we are slaves to the present as are our children. Ulai, perhaps, is the affirmation of hope because it teaches us us that there are infinite possibilities ahead. But ulai also has a deeper meaning as well. Ulai, perhaps, reminds us that we are not in complete control of our lives. And though we can prepare, life throws too many curveballs at us, and sometimes we get hit. On Yom Kippur, we are confronted with the truth that we don't always want to acknowledge that we are unsure of whether our name is in the metaphoric book of life. Now, the second part of Jeremiah's Ulai Yesh Tikva is Yesh. Yesh means there is. The the, The obvious opposite, of course, is there isn't. And seeing the world as an is or an isn't is a choice that we make on Yom Kippur. Or let me put it another way. Jeremiah teaches us that our attitude determines our altitude. And how we approach our darkest moments 
is often a choice that determines how soon we can emerge, scathed and hurt and limping, perhaps, but alive and functioning. When Jeremiah utters yesh, there is, he is sitting in the, he is sitting by the, Bab- the waters of Babylon, his home, his country, and his life, literally in shambles. And yet he still has tikva. He still has hope. A good prophet does that. That's how they got their books in the Bible. The lousy prophets offer no hope, and their books never made it. American society, and too many of us individually, have lost our sense of yesh. There is. Instead, we are filled with ain. There isn't. Dourness and anger have overtaken us. We've, they've blanketed us with negativity. Negativity towards anyone not like us. Negativity towards the climate. Negativity towards the future. For example, 50% of all Gen Z and millennials don't want children. 50%. It costs too much, they say, for sure. But to add to that, the political climate where people in the United States today are saying, let's hang them. Let's start a second civil war. The political climate, the stripping of civil rights, the overt hatred of people that is now being expressed openly. It is not surprising that young people do not want to have children. Younger people are more accepting and tolerant. They are inviting and hopeful. But today, not enough of them see enough yesh, but they see plenty of ain. Simply put, they generally don't want to bring their children into a world of ain without. But young people are not the only ones with a sense of ain. There's a sense of missing something, of inadequacy. In 1978, a brand new term entered the secular lexicon, and that term was imposter syndrome. It's a psychological state where people doubt their skills, their talents, their accomplishments, and they have a, they have a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as a fraud. Despite external evidence of their competence, Those experiencing this phenomena do not believe that they deserve any success or any luck. I can't be sure, but there must be a river of ain just out of sight of their vision, and yet it's always present. It is the weight of pessimism and and negativity in the story of the teacher who's holding that glass of water. She wanted her students to give a description, and everybody expected that uh, heard everybody expected uh, that they'd be asked the half full or half uh, empty question. And instead, she said to them, how heavy is this glass of water? And the answers were eight ounces, 20 ounces. And then she said something that was very insightful. She said, the absolute weight does not matter. It depends on how long I hold it on for. If I hold it on up to uh, if I hold it if if I hold on to it for a minute it's no problem. If I hold on to it for an hour my arm is going to ache. If I hold on for to it for a day 
my arm becomes numb and paralyzed. The absolute weight of the glass hasn't changed, but the longer I hold it, the heavier it becomes. And then she said, in belief there is no hope, the belief that there is no hope is like that glass of water. Think about Ain for a while and nothing happens. Think about Ain for a bit longer, our soul gets tired. Think about it all day long, we feel paralyzed, incapable of doing anything. And that is the Ain that is so corrosive to a Shana Tova, to a good year. It is the Ain that makes our souls yearn for something greater. What do you see when you look into your own soul? Are you looking for the yesh, there is, or the aim, what you lack? Are we looking at everything everyone says with suspicion and dubious intent? There are times when we too, when we have to, obviously. But Jeremiah showed us that it doesn't have to be like that all the time. In the midst of a new exile to Babylon, which he ascribed to a kind of a form of punishment for the Jewish people, he did not write in his book, ha, you deserved it. Rather, he tells the Jews, even the wall of Babylon shall fall. He is telling him that indeed there is a future. Teshuvah is the watchword of this season. It's often uh, translated as repentance. But it's better understood as return. But return to what? Rav Cook was one of the greatest Jewish mystics of the modern era. And he taught that we suffer from a kind of amnesia. We sometimes forget the essence of our souls. Everything becomes confused and in doubt. The primary teshuva that which lights up the darkness is when we return to the root of our souls and then we immediately return to God, the soul of our souls. In other words, yesh, the appreciation of what there is, the hope for a future, is our true nature. And teshuva is finding our way to that yesh, a sense that we are enough that we are animated with divinity, that we are special, capable of fulfilling our unique missions in the world. To embrace the promise of the future, it takes that kind of a teshuva, a turning of ourselves from what we don't have to what we do. But it's not about material stuff or the kind of car we want. It's about spirituality. We have now arrived at that third word, and the root of this holy day, tikva, hope. In the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, anybody ever been there? Oh, okay. There's a piece of art called America's Joyous Future. America's Joyous Future. <laughs> the artist took a church bulletin board and turned it into a piece of art, and this is what it said. Monday, Alcoholics Anonymous. Tuesday, Abused Spouses. Wednesday, Eating Disorders. Thursday, Say No to Drugs. Friday, 
Teen Suicide Watch. Saturday, Soup Kitchen. Sunday Sermon, America's Joyous Future. Now, what was the artist saying? The AIM person sees this as proof that everything is filled with hopelessness and intractable problems. The Yesh person sees exactly the opposite. The AIM person sees America's joyous future as an indictment of churches and synagogues that preach the pie in the sky uh, uh, during their worship services, while at the same time remain oblivious to the real pain and hurt of people. The Yesh person sees it rather as a sign that our congregations are deeply immersed in human suffering, that our doors are wide open to the pathologies of the time. Ulai yesh, perhaps there is something that will ultimately emerge for the good. There is tikva, the hope we make, and also hope as a religious impulse that we call faith. Faith in what, you may say? A God I don't believe in? I get it, I do. My rabbihood is not isolated me from the struggles that many of you have expressed with me over the years. And yet, Ulai, perhaps, perhaps we are cutting ourselves off from Yesh, something important, I might even say essential, abundant and brimming with tikva and hope. For could our ancestors have been that wrong and that deluded? Can we suspend disbelief for one moment? and allow ourselves to rest in the arms of the Eternal. If that is too much for us, we can at least grasp the hands of our ancestors and the 3,000-plus years of Jewish experience singed by tragedy but brimming with hope. Those are our ancestors. They're the ones who are with us here today. And when we stood for the Amidah, the 2,000-year-old standing prayer, they are standing with us. When we read Nitzavim, they stood with us. When we sing Avinu Malkenu, their echo is in our heart. When we recite the Kaddish, they cry with us. Their hand is outstretched to us. This is time for us to grab it, to grasp it, to take it, at least for a moment. According to the Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, the beginning of the new year is clouded in mystery because at the beginning of the moon, at the beginning of the month, the moon is hidden from view. We can't see the moon, but we know it's there. Yesh Tikva, there is hope. Perhaps there is hope. Perhaps there is hope is how Jews ought to respond to the world around us on the cusp of a new year. Perhaps there is hope that the hate and the distrust and the violence that we see growing every day in America will subside. Let us make this year a statement, not of aim of what we don't have, but of yesh, of yesh, of there is, there is hope to reach out to our neighbor, to reach out to our families, to reach out to our faith, because we exist as a people, because those who came before us knew that there was hope. And I will tell you, they lived in much dire times than we do.
they were right. Yesh tikva, not even ulai yesh tikva. Not even perhaps there is tikva, but there is tikva. And we are their tikva. We are their hope. And today, each of us must renew our hope, firmly rooted in the hope of the past, and let's all make this year a year of Aish, a year of possibilities of what could be. Shana Tova.